This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, House Democrats wrap up their case against the president, and the White House legal team kicks off a vigorous defense of Mr. Trump. Will there be enough Republican senators voting to bring in witnesses, or is the impeachment saga nearing its end? Plus... This morning, a new case of the coronavirus has been diagnosed here in the U.S. and around the world, fears and efforts to contain the virus are growing. Democrats have rested their case after 24 hours of arguments, warning that if the Senate doesn't take action and remove President Trump from office, quote, grave harm will come to the nation and that the president can't be trusted to stand up to Russia. Let's say they start blatantly interfering in our election again to help Donald Trump. Can you have the least bit of confidence that Donald Trump will stand up to them and protect our national interest over his own personal interest? You know you can't, which makes him dangerous to this country. You know you can't. Now it's the White House legal team's turn. They the say Democrats the are the ones and interfering the and promise to make former Vice President Biden and his son Hunter star attractions of their defense. They're here to perpetrate the most massive interference in an election in American history. And they basically said, let's cancel an election over a meeting with the Ukraine. And there is new evidence of the president's efforts to remove the ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, as a videotape surfaces of him talking to Rudy Giuliani associates about getting rid of her. The biggest problem there, I think, where we, where we need to start is we've got to get rid of the ambassador. Is she still left over from the Clinton administration? Who are the ambassador of Ukraine? Yeah, and she's basically walking around telling everybody, wait, he's going to get impeached. Uh, just wait. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. It's like, She'll be gone tomorrow. 
I don't remember the name. Get rid of her. Get her out. Get her out. Do it. Will the new revelations matter, or do Republicans have the votes to end the trial this week? We'll hear from a key supporter of the president, Senator Tom Cotton, and House impeachment manager, Congressman Jason Crow. We'll have the latest from China as the spread of the coronavirus and the efforts to contain it intensify. Finally, with just a week before the first votes in the 2020 campaign, I've been doing this now for a year, and now we're down to the last few days. Democratic senators stuck in Washington last week are back on the campaign trail, at least for a day. Our new battleground tracker shows a tight race that's turning testy out in Iowa. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to cover today with the president's impeachment trial and with the Iowa caucus just a week away. But we're going to begin with an update on the spread of the coronavirus as efforts are underway to evacuate U.S. diplomats and some American citizens from the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, Wuhan, China, on Tuesday. In the U.S., there are now three confirmed cases of the Wuhan coronavirus, But in China, the number of confirmed cases has risen to nearly 2,000, with another 2,600 suspected cases. Fifteen new deaths were confirmed by Chinese officials overnight, bringing the total to at least 56 deaths. CBS News Asia correspondent Remy Innocencio joins us. Remy? Good morning. Chinese President Xi Jinping says the spread of this coronavirus is now accelerating and the country is facing a grave situation. And now in Wuhan and at least 16 other cities, more than 50 million people are now under some kind of partial or total public transport lockdown. Unsettling video posted to social media shows a chaotic situation at a Wuhan hospital, overcrowded conditions, and even what appears to be dead bodies on the floor as workers treat new patients. Images that can't be independently verified by CBS News. Now, to help contain this epidemic, the government is racing to build not just one, but two hospitals to treat more than 2,000 potential patients. That's a move that spurred many people to speculate the number of infected is actually much higher than officially released numbers. Vehicles have been banned from the city center and Wuhan's airport. Its train station and its bus stations all sit empty on China's Lunar New Year holiday. That's a week-long affair that's usually a happy family celebration. And beyond China's borders, the U.S. has now confirmed a third case of coronavirus, this one in Orange County, California. That person, in good condition, according to health officials, follows cases in Washington State and Chicago. And back in Beijing, the streets are nearly empty here, and those who are out during this Lunar New Year are wearing masks. Major tourist attractions, which would normally be packed with people like the Forbidden City and a popular part of the Great Wall, have now been closed. And in Shanghai, one of the country's biggest draws, Shanghai Disney, has closed its gates. And today, Chinese health officials urge anyone who's been to Wuhan to self-quarantine and to monitor themselves for symptoms. Those include fever, coughing and shortness of breath over a period of 14 days. Margaret? 
That's Remy Innocencio in Beijing. Thank you. We now turn to Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton. Good morning and good to have you here, Senator. Good to be on with you, Margaret. You raised concerns earlier this week that China was giving misleading information about what's happening. President Trump has since thanked China for its transparency. Have your concerns abated? So, Margaret, given China's record of dishonesty and incompetence when it comes to dealing with these public health emergencies like the SARS outbreak uh, in 2003, I think this is a case where an ounce of prevention truly does equal a pound of cure. Uh, we know from the outset um, earlier this month that local Chinese authorities in Wuhan and in Hubei province were not as forthcoming, not as quick as they should be. As we heard in the report, Xi Jinping has now said they're going to try to centralize the response to this. Hopefully, they'll be more transparent. Obviously, things that are very fast-breaking, even since the president said what he did just a couple days ago. So you think they are getting more transparent? They're, try they're, they're apparently moving that direction. Okay. Again, I think we should be skeptical of China because they have a history of dishonesty when it comes to these kind of outbreaks. And this is a, this is a very serious matter. And they're, they're putting in some travel restrictions internally. But do you think, as you suggested in a letter earlier this week, that there needs to be a ban on entry to the U.S. from so China? Right, so right now what the CDC has done is try to direct all air traffic from from Wuhan into a handful of American airports. Um, if that doesn't control the situation, we may need to look at expanding that from all Chinese travel in the United States. Um, I also think it would be appropriate for the Food and Drug Administration to expedite on an emergency basis approval for testing kits to state and local governments so you're not just depending on the federal government to test these things. But again, we need to get ahead of this problem. And given China's record of dishonesty when it comes to these public health emergencies, we truly do need to use an ounce of prevention here rather than having to use a pound of a cure in a few months. I want to ask you about politics here at home. Um, Mitt Romney, one of your Republican colleagues, says he is likely to vote to call witnesses in the impeachment trial. How many other Republicans do you expect to vote to approve witnesses and evidence? I don't know, Margaret. I'm not going to vote to approve witnesses because the House Democrats have had lots of witnesses. We heard from them over and over and over again this week. We don't need to prolong what's already taken five months of the American people's time. The House Democrats have not proven their case against Donald Trump. We don't need to prolong this matter. Do you, what we saw last do you week, have I say, a sense, though, that there is a chance there could be witnesses? Well, I, I Will don't, there be I those four Republicans crossing I, I don't want to forecast the way other senators may vote. But I would just say the last five days have kind of been a microcosm of the last five months. We listened to Adam Schiff drone on for three days. And then the president's lawyers, in just two hours, demolished the case that he had made. They, they also have by 24 hours over three days. And I don't want. think they're going to use them, but yesterday they used just two hours, mm -hmm. and they demolished the case that the House Democrats had presented using selective, misrepresented quotes from tape, using transcripts that were out of context, or just generally fulminating about how enraged they are that Donald Trump is still the president. You were scribbling notes during the trial. Some of our reporters in the room saw you doing that. And I wonder, since you say we should be getting this over with, if you actually do have questions, because senators do get to submit them and have them responded to in the next week. Do you, uh, I, do you want think, anything answered? Uh, well, we'll have 16 hours of questions, so we'll right. have plenty of time for questions. And do you have any? 
Well, I think given the House Democrats' presentation, there are now real questions about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's conduct. I mean, they spent hours trying to explain away what Hunter Biden did going to work for a corrupt Ukrainian oligarch and Joe Biden intervening to get that oligarch fired just days after his house was raided by investigators. But I think so, those are serious and legitimate but questions. But you would need to vote to approve witnesses to hear well, from the Bidens, which you just said well, you're not I'd going like to do. Well, I'd like to hear what Adam Schiff has to say about those facts that he, again, glossed over that I know the White House counsel is going to present. But um, you're I not going to vote I, to I don't think witnesses. we need to say, I don't. I do not think that we need more witnesses or documents. The House had 17 different witnesses. We saw mm -hmm. hours of their testimony this last week. They had 28,000 pages of documents. They're not upset that they haven't had witnesses. They're upset that their witnesses haven't said what they want them to say. Um, and I, I want to, just on the, the Biden front, I know the president's lawyers do, we do anticipate that they will talk about that in length, at length. Let's talk about what they did already present on. Um, do you think it was a misstep for one of the president's lawyers, Jay Sekulow, to stand on the floor of the Senate and repeat the conspiracy theory that Ukraine meddled in the 2016 election? Margaret, that's not a conspiracy theory. Senator yeah, John Thune, one of your Republican colleagues, said he would prefer that the lawyers not do that because but, the intelligence community concluded that it was Russia that meddled. So, so, Margaret, that's a Democratic talking point. This is what John the, Thune, one of the Republican leaders, said. It's a Democratic talking point that the president and his lawyers have argued that it was Ukraine who interfered in our elections, not Russia. You can read the president's brief. They make it very clear that, yes, you can accept that Russia interfered in a systematic, organized, top-down fashion in our election. I say that. I've been part of the intelligence committee that's been investigating it for years. You can also say that it's clear some Ukrainian officials tried to influence the outcome of the election in 2016. But you're being Both precise be in true. your words there, and that was not what the that's president's exactly, lawyers said. I'm, I'm on saying the floor exactly of what the, the president's brief says. You can also say that countries like China and Iran and North Korea try to influence our election as well. Both of those things can be true. But you do know that the Trump appointed elections are at the director of national intelligence said we do not assess that any other country influenced the united states election in 2016 on the scale of what the russians did that's an exact quote and from that's, that's, but that's consistent with my point i said on the scale of russia was top down organized systematic so would I mean, you the, caution the president's the lawyers to be more precise in their language Margaret, the ukrainian ambassador published an op-ed saying that or criticizing donald trump and sure. defending hillary clinton these are not Policy disputed difference. facts these are not disputed right. facts but that's not what the president's lawyer said on the floor. Um, I, putting that aside for a moment, what can we expect from the committee you sit on, Senate Intelligence, in terms of further reports on what Russia, as you just said, did do in the 2016 we're, election? We're going through the declassification process on many of these reports. I, I think we'll be releasing more information soon. I expect one, one more set of reports to come out later this year. Um, but one thing I, I think you'll see, too, is mm -hmm. that when you look back at the 2016 election, there's a lot that the Obama administration could have done at an earlier mm -hmm. stage to prevent Russia from interfering to the extent that it did. There's now this 90-minute long recording that uh, CBS and other networks have where President Trump speaks at length with two of Rudy Giuliani's business associates uh, who were involved in that pressure campaign in Ukraine. We played some of it at the top of the show. When the president says, get rid of take her out, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Given that the president previously said he didn't even know these men, doesn't it trouble you that we now have recordings of him discussing 
this issue in Ukraine with them. No, Margaret. And uh, this reminds me a lot of what happened in the Brett Kavanaugh case when the Democrats kept releasing supposed bombshells. I mean, I think all we're missing here is Michael Avenatti to come out and defend someone as well. Let's you don't look, think this let's recording look at the is con- damaging in any way? Let's look at the context of this report. That video was more than a year before he asked Maria Yovanovitch to be removed. And he was told in that video, we just heard, that she's running around Kiev bad-mouthing you and saying that you're going to be impeached. The president has the right to remove any ambassador for any reason or no yes, reason whatsoever. Does. An ambassador bad-mouthing the president is a pretty sound reason to remove an ambassador. Uh, the but president I would out, absolutely has I would, the right to do that, but Margaret, I think the question is why these business associates who have a financial and political interest in the matter were advising the president, and he responded would, and said, okay, take her out. I would point out, though, that that video occurred more than a year after she was removed. Right, and she so was standing it goes in the way of that pressure But it goes to show, the, pre- it goes to show the president, he was not hasty, he was not precipitous. He didn't just act on the word of these people. He waited more than a year and got more information as well. So I think the video, again, it reminds me a lot of what we saw mm-hmm. in the Kavanaugh controversy, and I don't think it influences the votes of any senators that well, I've heard. I want to ask you on another matter. Um, Iran, we now know from the Pentagon that it, the number is 34 Americans uh, who were injured when Iran filed the, fired those ballistic missiles into a, a base uh, and injured these Americans. The Pentagon now says half of them are receiving treatment. What is their status? How serious are so, the injuries? So the military does a lot better job than it did 15 or 20 years ago when it comes to brain injuries. You know, when I was in Iraq, if your truck got blown up, you went and got your eyes checked out or probably sent on your way. Do a much better job today than they did then. But there's also well, I, I want to spec- play, though. Here's, here's how the president described it when he was asked about these injuries. I heard that they had headaches and a couple of other things, but I would say, uh, and I can report, it is not very serious. So I, I think veterans groups are calling for the president to apologize. Should he apologize for calling it not very no, serious? I, he's just descri- he's not dismissing their injuries. He's describing. He their said injuries. they're headaches and not very serious. I think he's describing their injuries. He's not dismissing their injuries. Head injuries can be he on said anywhere. Headaches. I don't consider them very serious. Well, that's like saying that having a flesh wound is not very serious. Well, and veterans having, groups, the, and I know you're a veteran, and I know you no, know and, people and who suffered from TBI, as do I. Don't you think it's serious and that the president may need to apologize? I mean, if it isn't, if they are, in fact, if all these injuries are not serious, if they're on the less serious side of the scale than the severe traumatic side of the scale, the president is just describing what happened to him. He's not dismissing them. So you consider TBI a serious injury? Yes, but it okay. is, again, it's, there's a big scale of that that can be, you know, return to duty in one day or okay. have severe traumatic lasting injury. And I, I think he's okay. describing, thankfully, what end of the scale that lies on. Senator Cotton, thank you for your time today. We'll be thank back you. with one of the Democrats arguing the case, Colorado Congressman Jason Crow. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. We're back with one of the House impeachment managers, Colorado Democrat Jason Crow, who presented opening arguments this week. Congressman, good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. You are a first-term congressman. You flipped a district, Republican to Democrat. 
Um, do you think that in that presentation you made, that your colleagues made, that you have persuaded Republicans to vote to approve witnesses? I hope so. I mean, uh, overwhelmingly, the American people support that. You know, almost three-quarters of the American people want a fair trial, want uh, evidence, want witnesses, want documents, and that's what they deserve. You know, the president deserves a fair trial. The American people deserve a fair trial. Uh, and the senators, who are going to have to make a really important decision here in the coming days, need to have all of the evidence and uh, the full picture in front of them. Senator Cotton was indicating that y you likely don't have those votes, though he didn't want to specifically say the numbers. You know, I don't know. I can't read people's mind. I know Senator Cotton can't read people's mind. You know, we have to just make uh, the best case we can. Uh, I think we did that. I, I think it's very compelling. C clearly, the American people uh, thought it was compelling because that's overwhelmingly what they're asking for here. So on the numbers, you need four Republicans to vote alongside Democrats to get this approved. New evidence new witnesses. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of criticism because that, that margin is so narrow that you needed to really persuade those four. Uh, two of those names, Senators Murkowski and Collins, have said that there were they were personally, they took umbrage at some of the presentation over the three days. Um, there was complaints about repetition, complaints about style, and specifically language used by Chairman Nadler and Schiff. Do you think Democrats overplayed their hand at all? No, I don't. Uh, I mean, listen, the manager team is a very diverse team and background and experience. Uh, and, you know, we, we make cases in different ways. We have different styles, and that's fine. But the larger point is that this isn't about any one person. This isn't about, you know, how people are feeling about this issue. Uh, everybody sitting in that chamber has taken an oath uh, to be a, a, an impartial juror. Uh, we've all taken oaths to be members of Congress, uh, to mm -hmm. put the Constitution, to put the country ahead of our own personal interests and well-being. You know, my, my last comments on Friday night when I closed uh, my presentation was about the nature of public service. Yeah. And I wanted to end on that because, you know, by definition, public service is about serving the country and the community and not yourself. So, so this you, is not you, about any one person. You reject those criticisms, though. You don't think that they are actually going to play a factor in persuading votes? I, I think it's a distraction from the overall issue. Okay. You know, we presented overwhelming evidence of the president's misconduct. Uh, that's what this is about. It's about the president coursing an ally at war to help him with a political campaign. This is not about uh, any personality issues. So one of the things you focused in on was uh, the national security justification for the aid in the first place and why this was damaging. The president's lawyer, Jay Sekulow, yesterday called you out by name. Mm -hmm. um, and he accused you of getting facts wrong when you said President Trump was only interested in Ukraine aid. He listed other countries, Pakistan, Lebanon, where aid has been paused. Uh, does he have a point here that the president has been opposed to foreign aid and that there have been other countries where aid has been at least temporarily halted? Well, first off, I think it surprises nobody that you know, the conduct of the president and, and those around him is about attacking people personally. You know, he continues to do that this morning. Well, uh, he was specifically talking about you getting facts wrong on those countries. Well, and, and doing it obviously in an attacking way. But let's look at the facts and how important those really are. Uh, you know, the, the, the aid uh, and the things that they mention, those specific examples, are radically different from what we're talking about here. Uh, first off, many of those aren't military aid programs. Secondly, those that have been stalled, they've been stalled through the normal process because Congress has actually not made the certifications because the process that's put in place has identified issues that have to be resolved. Uh, in the, in the, the instance of Ukraine, what we're talking about here, everything that was done by the president was done outside of that process. Mm -hmm. That process had already happened. The certifications were already made. And the president himself personally stopped the aid from flowing 
despite the fact that that process had already occurred. Can you do anything as a prosecutor with the tape, the 90-minute tape that we played a clip of there of Lev Parnas, one of Giuliani's associates? Well, you know, I, I've heard the tape. Uh, I know the other managers have. I know a lot of people in America have heard the tape. Uh, you know, broadly speaking, this is a continuation of uh, the president's bullying and intimidation. You know, it's, it's what he's done for the last uh, three, four years. Um, and he's going to continue to do it. But it's not evidence you can introduce in any way. Well, I, I think the senators have all seen it, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a little bit different from most uh, courts in that the you know, evidence continues to come out. Yeah. I mean, earlier this week, uh, as I was uh, presenting you know, one of the, the components of our case, uh, you know, I held up a redacted set of emails that had just come out around midnight the day before. There's a lot that's still out there. The American people deserve the full picture, and that's why we're going to continue to push for additional evidence. Quickly, Adam Schiff, the chairman of intelligence, said that uh, he, he raised some doubt about the election. He said that's what this is all about. We cannot be assured the vote will be fairly won. Was that a misstep? Well, uh, no. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think what Chairman Schiff was trying to say here was that there's a lot of reason to be concerned. Okay. Uh, and, and there is. Thank you. Right? I mean, uh, uh, the bottom line is the president has a pattern and practice of trying to invite foreign interference in our elections, and that's what this is about. All right. Congressman, thank you. Just hours after the impeachment trial ended for the day yesterday, the four senators running for the Democratic nomination raced to Iowa to spend some time on the campaign trail. What have the other candidates been up to? Well, entrepreneur Andrew Yang posted this video on Twitter, a rather unusual campaign activity that, of course, went viral. What impact will all of the time spent in Washington have on the campaigns of the four senators? According to our battleground tracker, some, but not much, as slightly more voters think senators who are spending time in Washington will be hurt rather than helped. But two-thirds of voters say it won't make any difference. As for Andrew Yang, we'll find out a week from Monday whether his skill with axe swinging Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Helps him with the voters. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Washington may be bogged down in impeachment, but there is a big contest underway out there in Iowa, and we'll know the winner in just over a week. Our CBS News Battleground tracker is out this morning, and it shows Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders leading the field with 26% of the vote. Former Vice President Joe Biden's right behind him with 25 percent. Former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg is at 22 percent. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren's at 15 percent in our survey with Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar at 7 percent. The rest of the field comes in with 1 percent or less. For a closer look at what is driving this very tight race, we turn to CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto. Anthony, tight but you say it's also very fluid. Yeah, because we are covering a caucus, which is a meeting, not a conventional vote, and it's one in which people can, and usually do, change who they support along the way. 
Now, the key thing to watch here is that party rules say that anybody whose supporters are below 15 percent, that's the magic number, can't get delegates. And so they often change to maybe their second choice candidate. So you want to look at, well, who, is, who else are these supporters considering? Well, for a lot of folks, Amy Klobuchar supporters and others, their second choice is Joe Biden. If they move, that could boost him. But there's a really key mark here now for Elizabeth Warren. She's right on that line at 15 percent, and that's why it's so important for her to stay above it, because her supporters, well, their second choice is Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. If they were to slip away on caucus night, that would boost Sanders' chances. It's all a reminder that what we're covering is really fluid right through next Monday. But Bernie Sanders has consistently been near the top. Why is, does he have that hold? Because his supporters are, compared to other candidates, the most enthusiastic and the most solidly behind him. He's been top of the field on both of those measures, holding very steady, even as other candidates throughout this contest have shifted around. That's one big thing. He also represents part of this fight that's going on within the Democratic Party of whether they ought to have a message of returning to back to the Obama era or have an even more liberal, more progressive direction than they've been before. His supporters believe he represents the future of the Democratic Party going in that more progressive direction. Even though he's 78 years old, he represents the future of the party. In spite of his age, his policies. Uh, and age-wise, one of his peers, though, Joe Biden, has consistently sort of tussled with that top spot as well. How tight is it between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders? Well, extremely tight underpinning Biden's support are a couple of things. One is he is widely seen as being prepared to be commander-in-chief. That's a topic that's come up lately. Also, he is seen as a safer choice, but he doesn't have quite that enthusiasm and that solidity of support that Bernie Sanders does. Another key mark for him as compared to, uh, and maybe a vulnerability for him as compared to Sanders, is that Sanders is more seen as fighting for people like you. That's a place where maybe Biden has to boost his numbers. And you're also keeping an eye on those other contests outside of Iowa. We know at least one major candidate is ignoring Iowa altogether and the other early states, and that is former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. He's decided instead to focus in on Super Tuesday on March 3rd. According to our battleground tracker, it is a tight race at the top there between former Vice President Biden at 26 percent, with Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren tied at 24 percent. The next tier includes former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg with 8 percent of the vote, and Pete Buttigieg has 7 percent. Senator Amy Klobuchar has 4 percent. The six remaining candidates come in with 1 percent or less. And, Anthony, what's interesting there is, as we say, it's a totally different strategy. But Michael Bloomberg has focused in spending a lot of money, more than $200 million on television ads. Do these numbers mean that strategy is working? Well, he's rising. As you mentioned, he's still well back of Biden, right. Sanders, and Warren. But he is up from our last survey. So there is some traction there. And one of the things that struck me is he's doing just as well or better among minority voters, among African-American voters across those states, as he is with white voters. And that's key because they make up a large part of the electorate, and it could cut a little bit into Joe Biden's strength there. 
One of the things, too, is you look at Elizabeth Warren doing a little bit better there than she is in some of those early states, and that's partly because college degree holding, very liberal voters who populate those states are also more in support of her. I would emphasize that as much as we're all going and looking at Iowa and focusing on those early states, while that's going on, places like California are starting their early votes. So this year, those Super Tuesday states and their delegate hall could matter more than ever. It's a long-haul race, Anthony. I'm glad you'll be here with us for all of it. And we've got political correspondent Ed O'Keefe standing by in Iowa to tell us more about what's happening on the ground. So stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we're back with our political correspondent, Ed O'Keefe, who is out in snowy Iowa, Des Moines to be exact. Uh, Ed, what are you seeing on the ground? Well, Margaret, this is essentially the last Sunday that candidates have to campaign because with the Super Bowl next weekend, they concede it'll be hard to reach voters. All of them here in the state today holding dozens of events and some of them quite desperate to do so. As Amy Klobuchar told the crowd last night, she turns into a pumpkin on Monday when she has to go back to Washington and focus once again on the impeachment trial. Perhaps the big headline overnight is actually a headline, and that is in the Des Moines Register, an endorsement for Elizabeth Warren from the state's largest newspaper. She's thrilled by that. Other candidates have received endorsements as well, but this one probably has the most effect across the state. But she slipped into fourth place, as our battleground tracker shows in other surveys as well, at the expe- well, at, to the benefit of Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who remains a very big factor here and knows that he must perform well if he has any hope of continuing on. We talked to him about what he's trying to do to stand out in the field. Well, here's what I'd say. If you're focused on winning, remember this. Every time my party's won in the last 50 years, it's been with a nominee who was new to national politics, had not run for president before, did not have an office in Washington, or at least hadn't had one for very long, and was opening the door to a new generation of leadership. That's how we win. There was a scuffle in recent days, so to speak, between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. I know she said that nobody likes me, right? I mean, this is not the kind of rhetoric that we need right now when we are trying to bring the Democratic Party together to defeat the most dangerous president uh, in American history. Is Hillary Clinton still relevant to the conversation and to the Democratic Party? Well, of course, uh, I respect what uh, any leader in our party has to say. I'll also say the less 2020 resembles 2016, the better. We are at a moment when we have got to recognize what we share as a party, the shared values uh, that motivate us. And that's what my campaign is about. I'm speaking to fellow uh, Democrats and to independents. I'm speaking to progressives, moderates, and some folks who might have leaned right in the past but are sick uh, with what's happening right now. They're what I call the future former Republicans, and they are welcome to be, to be part of this coalition. And they wouldn't find favor with someone like Bernie Sanders then, most well, likely. What I'm saying is you don't have to give up on our progressive values or water them down one bit to have a message that is inclusive and drawing as many people as possible in. We've got to not just beat Donald Trump. We've got to beat him big so that Trumpism goes into the history books, too. Ed, Mayor Pete has argued that his military service helps qualify him to be commander-in-chief. 
veterans groups in this country are calling on President Trump to apologize about remarks he made uh, about traumatic brain injury. How did Mayor Pete frame the issue? Well, this is certainly an advantage for him to talk about his military service. And the usually unflappable Buttigieg was notably torqued about this issue. Uh, it's personal for him. And, uh, and he spoke about it at great length. Traumatic brain injury is life-threatening, not just at the time, but for the rest of your life. It can completely debilitate somebody who has served this country. And for the president to belittle that kind of sacrifice, for the president who, who avoided serving because he said bone spurs made it impossible for him to be able to do his part, to turn around and demean the experience of soldiers in harm's way who were injured, who were very concretely and literally injured by an Iranian missile attack, is one more example of why Donald Trump has no business anywhere near the Situation Room. This is one of the few issues that really seems to torque you. Yeah. You're somebody who's been pretty level-headed, but this one clearly gets to you. Well, it makes my blood boil. The President of the United States showing this level of disrespect to everybody from, remember, these injured service members that he's talking about. He's their commander-in-chief right now. Their lives depend on his wisdom and judgment right now. And he can't even show a basic level of concern. Strong words. Ed O'Keefe, thank you for bringing us that. We'll be back in a moment with our political panel. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's time now for some analysis from our political panel. Phil Rucker is a White House bureau chief at The Washington Post, and he has a new book out, along with his colleague Carol Lenig, a very stable genius, Donald J. Trump's testing of America. David Nakamura also covers the White House for The Washington Post. Ramesh Ponuru is senior editor at the National Review and a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And Kelsey Snell is a congressional correspondent at NPR. Kelsey, start us off here. What can we expect? Will this trial go beyond next week? I've been told that the absolute fastest it could end would be Friday. So the White House still has to, they have two days left that they could use to make their argument. We understand that they don't plan to use the totality of that time. And then senators will have time to ask questions. They will not be standing up and speaking their questions. They will all be written and passed forward. And then the question of witnesses and evidence comes up. I've been told that Friday is a quick pace, but it's the pace that they hope to meet because there is a lot at stake here. You've got the Iowa caucuses next week. You have State of the Union next week. And the president has an interview during the Super Bowl. So there is a great interest among Republicans in wrapping this up by the end of the week. Senator Cotton said he couldn't or wouldn't forecast votes on witnesses. Do you have the sense that there are four Republicans lined up to vote to approve them? A Republican aide told me that the votes weren't there on Tuesday and they weren't there last night and they don't expect the votes to be there next week. So they, there is some confidence among Republicans that they simply, Democrats simply have not convinced four Republicans to move to their side. 
Ramesh, what is the risk in casting that vote? Is there one? Well, the polls do indicate that most people think that there should be witnesses. But I think that Republicans are on the assumption that their voters, Republican-based voters, have basically concluded that this is, as the president says, a scam and a witch hunt, and that there's plenty of time between now and the election. This is not going to be the top voting issue. But for what is not known, for the recordings like we now have, the things that continue to dribble out, is there a risk in casting a vote, uh, you know, not approving witnesses, and then being surprised down the line that more evidence comes out that makes it look like maybe you should have asked more questions? I'm not sure that a lot of the senators are thinking that far ahead. I think what they are thinking is they've got to stand with the party, that this is a time for party unity. And one of the things we're seeing that structured this whole debate is that two-thirds requirement in the Senate to remove a president. It requires so much consensus in the country. And when you don't have a very, very significant part of the president's own party willing to do that, it's preordained that it's not going to go anywhere. So, David, the president is being teed up to essentially say he was vindicated, and Republicans seem confident that they've won. Is that where the president's head is at right now? Certainly. I mean, he's he's certainly he's uh, concerned about what's happening here, but he certainly is uh, hoping to set that up and be able to sort of announce that at the State of the Union. Uh, Similar the way he did with the Russia investigation, calling it a witch hunt for so long. Uh, Once that was over, he said, I'm clean, I'm done with this, we're moving on. And certainly uh, he and his advisors see it that way. I think they would like to, as as much as the president at times has vacillated and suggested that he'd like to see some witnesses, um, particularly Democratic witnesses as well, such as Joe Biden or Hunter Biden, uh, I think in the end he he will take the cues from uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate. And I think he probably would be, be fine if it moves quickly. You know, Phil, I I pressed uh, Congressman Crow on whether Democrats had overplayed their hand and referenced some of the language that has offended Republicans. The president just this morning has tweeted something about Adam Schiff, saying he has not paid the price yet for what he has done to our country. The other day, he he called him a liar, a cheat. He's called uh, other Democratic leaders dumb as rocks. it, it, it doesn't seem to be offensive that the president is calling Democratic leaders there, but Republicans are taking offense at some of the language Democrats are using on the floor of the Senate. Yeah, I think, Margaret, there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, this is a president who demands absolute fealty uh, from Republicans in Congress and especially in the Senate right now and has threatened them and they feel threatened. And so there's, an, uh, there's just a reluctance among these Republicans to cross Trump in any way, including calling him out uh, for the tweets that you just mentioned. And, you know, the president feels this sense of victimization. He has these grievances. He feels like anybody who's trying to hold him accountable in our system of government, including in the legislative branch, is somehow violating uh, him, violating the American people, uh, trying to undo the 2016 election. This is the way the president views all of this that's going on, and I think that's one of the reasons we've seen him use such extraordinarily harsh language in his Twitter comments. And you also don't expect for Republicans to vote alongside Democrats to approve witnesses? This is, in other words, a successful strategy? It appears to be. Uh, you know, certainly four Republicans could vote. We already see Mitt Romney suggesting he might. Mm-hmm. It would only require three more. They could get there. Uh, but again, the Republicans are really cowed at this point and unwilling to cross the president. Kelsey, Democrats are arguing that all of this This entire impeachment investigation was about preserving the integrity of the U.S. elections. But then we also heard from Chairman Schiff that he thinks the elections in 2020 
may not be uh, unencumbered by some kind of interference. That kind of seems at cross-purposes messaging-wise. Um, what does all of this leave the American people with? What do they walk away from impeachment thinking? Well, I think that's part of why we saw, particularly during prime time, that Adam Schiff was speaking less to the senators in the room. There was a different feeling to the way he spoke. Um, he was presenting the case in a much more concise and direct way to the voters, talking to them about what's at stake, not just in the presidential election, but I think there was a lot of talk about what was at stake for the Senate and these senators who will be voting to acquit or to convict this president or to oust this president. I think a lot of what Schiff is trying to do is drive the stakes home and make people feel engaged in 2020 in a way that they may not already. Phil, in your book, um, you and Carol write about one particular instance that caught my attention where President Trump uh, was saying he would like to try to repeal the prohibition against paying bribes to foreign leaders. Um, essentially, that's corruption. We've heard a lot about corruption and the president's concern about stamping it out in Ukraine. Yeah. So from your reporting, have you seen a broader concern in stamping it out? Because that one particular incident you write about seems at odds. There is no broader concern that we were able to detect in our reporting. And we interviewed, by the way, more than 200 Trump administration officials and advisors to the president for this book. And, and there's a common thread, which is that this is a president who doesn't really care about corruption, either abroad or in his businesses or in his administration. He cares about winning. He cares about advancing his personal uh, agenda, building the self-image. Uh, that he has created for himself according to the people who've worked closest to him. And that's at odds with the argument that his lawyers are making in this impeachment trial, which is that Trump was so fixated on ending corruption in Ukraine and investigating corruption in Ukraine. In fact, he asked Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in 2017 to end the law, to repeal the law in America that prohibited that sort of foreign corruption. Which is shocking. It was very surprising to us when we heard about it. And in fact, once our book came out uh, a few days ago, one of the president's top advisors confirmed publicly that the president is interested in getting rid of this law. He just does not have the power to do so on his own because, of course, we have a legislative branch in this country. Larry Kudlow is who you're referring to. That's there. correct. So yes, uh, it had been discussed. Um, David, meanwhile, this coming week, in addition to impeachment, we have a few other newsy events, including the president is planning... Um, I don't know, do we call it a summit? Uh, certainly an invitation to Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself uh, facing some legal problems, yep. indicted back at home, fighting for his political life, along with his political rival. This looks, yeah. What is this about? Well, this looks like a big moment for a couple things. One is uh, the president does like to uh, counter-program to what's happening on, in Congress. He went out last week and became the first uh, sitting president to visit the March for Life, and he sort of rallied tens of thousands of mostly supporters, uh, some of whom were wearing campaign clothing, um, and sort of had a split-screen image to what was happening. So part of it's that. But he's also now announcing that he's going to lay out his long-anticipated uh, Middle East peace plan. Uh, as these Israeli leaders are here. Uh, this is something that the administration's been working on with Jared Kushner and others for a long time. Uh, however, it's, you know, it appears to be uh, essentially dead on arrival in that the, uh, the president has had such close bonds with the Israeli leadership, mm -hmm. uh, the Palestinians have not bought into it. So uh, you know, you're going to see the president sort of doing these kind of things next week. There's also a, a, a signing of the uh, a trade deal with Mexico and Canada uh, the mm -hmm. president's going to do to sort of, uh, sort of take back some of the headlines. 
uh, but he's often his own worst enemy when he begins tweeting about uh, what's happening on the Hill. Now, I want to ask both you, Kelsey and Ramesh, to weigh in on something, but I want to set it up for our viewers here. Um, Secretary Pompeo made clear he does not like being asked questions about Ukraine, uh, some of which one of your colleagues at NPR, Mary Louise Kelly, put to him this week. Um, I want to play her account of what happened after the interview. I was taken to the secretary's private living room where he was waiting and where he shouted at me for about the same amount of time as the interview itself had lasted. He was not happy to have been questioned about Ukraine. He asked do you think Americans care about Ukraine? He used the F word in that sentence uh, and many others. He asked if I could find Ukraine on a map. I said yes. He called out for his aides to bring him a map of the world with no writing, no countries marked. Huh. I pointed to Ukraine. He put the map away. He said people will hear about this. Uh, and then he turned and said he had things to do. And I thanked him again for his time and left. The secretary issued a statement officially from the State Department calling your colleague uh, a liar, um, attacking her integrity, her journalism, her sense of geography, among other things. Tell me about what happened. Well, I'd like to start by saying that Mary Louise is a great journalist and somebody whose integrity um, I've never seen questioned before. She works incredibly hard and is always incredibly prepared. I think it's important to note that in his statement, uh, Secretary Pompeo never disputes the facts that are reported in in the entirety of the questioning. We aired her interview unedited. And he never disputes any of the facts there. And there is a chain of emails. Mary Louise has told our CEO and has shared with uh, the folks higher up at NPR a chain of emails where she establishes that she plans to talk to uh, the secretary about Ukraine. Um, As a network, we fully stand behind her. Ramesh, you know, it's not unusual to see the Trump administration uh, butt heads with reporters. But this, issuing a statement from the State Department, which normally advocates for press freedom around the world. Do you see a broader impact to this? Well, I think there has been a real dramatic acceleration of the Republican Party's war on the press in the sense that there is now no limit to how much bashing of the press a Republican feels can be in their political interest. There's no sense that Republican voters are going to say, well, that's really a little bit too far. It be true, but you, you think for the Secretary of State, I think, Margaret, like you're talking about, he's talking about places like China, others that right. boss freedoms. President Trump has not uh, spoken out so, so broadly, but uh, certainly Pompeo and others have spoken about the uh, demonstrations in Hong Kong. President is certainly right. talking about demonstrators in Iran having free uh, speech. For the top diplomat to do this, I think, showed he, it, he seemed to show yeah. real frustration, uh, in, whereas other cases may be a little bit of a show. And to be clear, the question was specifically about the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who's at the center of the impeachment probe. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas and Colorado Democratic Congressman Jason Crow. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.